Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Dr. Elise Boxer, a professor of Native American Studies and the new director of the Institute of American Indian Studies at USD. Elise, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing really good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Um, you know, first, just to get started, what is your role at USD? Well, my role at USD has since expanded. Um, initially, I was hired um, to be an assistant professor with a joint appointment in the Native American Studies program and the Department of History. And then just recently, um, I was uh, named director by President Gestring to become the director for the Institute of American Indian now, we want to talk about um, you know, both of your roles, I guess, at USD, but just to first learn a little bit more about you, um, I guess, where does your journey on this path start? Okay, um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I am Dakota uh, for the Sisseton Wapiton Dams. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Fort Peck Sioux and Assiniboine Tribe, and we're located in northeast Montana. Um, so I grew up in my community, and um, in terms of my journey, I always, um, I guess I connected back just to um, my interest in history growing up, uh, going through the educational system, um, especially in history. Um, there was a lot of things I learned about like American Indian people that was not what I heard growing up. And so I actually have distinct memories in like middle school and then high school on when I was reading the textbook and, and realizing like that information was inaccurate. And so I wanted to go to eventually, um, as an undergrad at Washington State University, I decided to pursue history and secondary education because I felt at the very least what I could do is teach um, our students a more accurate history of the United States. Um, eventually, I realized that I wanted to continue my studies, and then I went on to earn a master's degree in history and then eventually a Ph.D. in history. Um, so in terms of looking at my journey, um, as a graduate student at Arizona State University, I had the privilege of um, working in the history department as a, as a teaching assistant. Um, but later, my interest expanded beyond just like U.S. history, excuse me, U.S. history. And then um, I wanted to start working with the American Indian Studies Department at ASU. Um, the American Indian Studies uh, Department at ASU is uh, probably graduate some of the most um, the most students in American Indian Studies. I had the privilege of working some of the, with the leading scholars in the in the discipline, and so eventually I decided that I wanted to teach American Indian Studies courses in addition to history. And my first job actually was at Eastern Washington University. I was a visiting assistant professor and. Um, I graduated at a time kind of similar to now with like an economic recession, um, and I was very fortunate. Um, my first job actually required um, and expected me to help develop uh, the major. They were a minor. They wanted to pursue um, um, to create basically a major in American Indian Studies. So my first, uh, my two years there, I created over 10 classes for them. Um, as I start to build up their program, eventually I moved on to University of Utah and then my job here at USD. Um, when I joined the faculty here at USD, um, they were um, in a kind of state of transition. 
They were looking for faculty who were interested in revitalizing our Native Studies program at the time. And so because of my experience and my expertise, that's what I did. I redesigned our curriculum our first year. Um, once it was approved by the Board of Regents, we implemented it our second, my second year here. Um, and we've been operating under that curriculum since then. And um, the first time, like the first year I was here at USD, we had one student who was trying to finish up her major um, in American Indian Studies. And then we had, I think, maybe one minor. Um, since then, we slowly have and steadily have grown. Um, but that's basically what I, why I'm here at USD. And I am invested in Native Studies. And, and it's not just um, the discipline, but I, I want to reach out to our students. Uh, most people think for like a Native American studies that it's just for Native students and that's actually not accurate. Native studies is for everybody. I really actually wish more students took our um, either a minor or a major in Native studies because I think that if they took that, they would actually have a better understanding of, of what's happening in our state of South Dakota and the region. Um, and more importantly, if you're going to work in this region, I think having a working understanding of tribal nations and peoples um, will better facilitate um, an individual like in their profession, whether it be in education, like social work, law enforcement. I mean, the list goes on. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit about my journey um, to USC, and then a little bit about what I do here at USC. Yeah, you, you spoke of you know just developing um, new classes in in Native Studies. Um, what goes into that? I mean, I mean, if I was going to take the um, you know, Native Studies minor and major here at USD, I mean, what would be some of the coursework that I would take? What is the mm -hmm. I guess goals of a program like that? Well, the primary goal of Native Studies is one I want students to realize is that it's actually a discipline, right? So it's not just classes that have to do with Native American people or the topics are about Native American people or just because we're interested in Native people. It's actually a very discipline-specific perspective. Um, and this perspective is something I use to actually also frame out the institute vision and the future for the Institute of American Indian Studies, but using the work of um, of, schol of a scholar, Elizabeth Kirkland, who's also Dakota, uh, um, what she says is that she says um, that American Indian Studies should be rooted in two fundamental principles. One, she defines as sovereignty, and then the a second is indigenousness. And that covers all sorts of different things. But for students, what I want them to realize is that we need to recognize and identify what Indigenous sovereignty looks like. And then the other part that's connected is to looking at then what are the ways in which our discipline explores certain issues of um, whether it's like sovereignty, whether it's like federal policy, contemporary issues. For a student who is interested in our major, um, I designed what I call like a core curriculum. And central to our core curriculum is the Lakota language. And while we are on the traditional territories of Dakota people um, and other tribes, such as like the Omaha, for example, um, it's important that we teach an indigenous language. USD has had a history of teaching Lakota language here. I incorporated that into the core curriculum where our students, regardless of their background, are expected to take Lakota 101. And the reason that becomes so fundamental is because language gives us an idea of worldview. 
And it gives us an idea of how Lakota or indigenous people see the world around them, the relationship that we have to one another, relationship that we have to the natural world, um, the relationship to land. So that's one course that I would say is foundational to our major. And then we have a series of other classes. Another class that I recommend students start out with that just want a basic working understanding would be our Intro to Native American Studies, and that's NATV 110. And in that class, the way I approach that class, and I teach that every fall, is students, I we talk first about the diversity of Indigenous nations. There's over 570 federally recognized tribes that does not include like state-recognized tribes or tribes that chose not to sign treaties with the United States. Um, we talk about, again, um, what I term like essential understandings, that there's such a diversity with Indigenous peoples, um, diversity in terms of our history, our language, um, spiritual belief systems, etc. And then I also give my students foundational terminology to the discipline and to our course. So students are going to be introduced to ideas like genocide, colonization, um, imperialism, decolonization, and those tools are really to kind of um, make sure that everybody has like this foundational knowledge. And then in addition to that, then we introduce them in the intro. Um, we start with contact and I approach my semester thematically. And so each semester or each week is a different theme. Um, and we, we, I try to kind of do it chronologically, but it's also impossible to cover everything over 500 years of history into one semester. So, like I said, we do a thematic approach. Um, students who are interested in whether a minor or a major are also expected to take our contemporary issues course. And I'm actually teaching that this semester. But one of the things my students are introduced to, again, is what are some of the pressing issues uh, facing tribal nations and peoples? Most often people, when they think about Native people, there's always these stereotypes that emerge um, and what I would call like deficit thinking. There's a tendency to focus on the negative with Native people, but in fact, what I want to focus on with students is that, that those things that are happening in communities as a result of colonization, and we talk about that, we talk about the issues, and then the most important thing I like to give my students is critical ways about thinking about these issues. And... In their final paper, they're actually expected to identify an issue that we learned in the semester and offer up a potential solution. And what would be ways that they could address that, whether it be like healthcare, the issue of like missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, looking at like maybe even like political government, um, treaties, etc. Like, so there's all these different things that we do in that class. Um, and then just in general, like our other curriculum gives our students like a round well-rounded view of um, the discipline and then people. Um, another class that was required is our federal Indian policy course. So we cover everything from like treaties to legislation. Um, they take a theory and methodology class and then also their final class that they'll eventually take in their senior year is going to be our senior capstone class, which is a research writing intensive course. Um, and then they basically pick a research and, and write um you know, original research for that class using the archives or oral histories. So that gives a little idea about like our coursework. Um, and this is why, again, kind of going back to my earlier point, this is why I think this is important for everybody. I think that if um, students were more familiar with understanding what happened um, between like indigenous peoples and between, for example, the state or federal government, I think we would have a better understanding of 
the current state um, of Indigenous peoples and then even like the possibility of like moving forward. And how do we collectively advance and protect Indigenous sovereignty? Um, and that can be done in a variety of ways, whether it's through like research, etc. You know, you brought up the concept of sovereignty and indigenousness. I mean, can we just unpack that a little bit? What is sovereignty? Why is it important? Sovereignty is important for a variety of different reasons. Um, the reason why I think um, why sovereignty becomes important is because tribal nations um, and tribal people, unlike other U.S. citizens, there's a whole body of a law that just applies to us and that we as indigenous peoples and nations had complete sovereignty prior to colonization or contact. And so treaties are a a recognition of that sovereignty. Those are nation-to-nation agreements. And so when the emphasis on sovereignty is important to recognize, for example, that there's there's nine tribes here, federally recognized tribes here within the boundaries of South Dakota, Um, and we have to acknowledge that because that's how tribes function. They function as a nation within a nation. And so even though many scholars, um, and you can argue that they're kind of quasi-sovereign, we are on par with like states. So if you look at some of the issues that happened even recently here in our state of South Dakota, um, it's tribes exercising their sovereignty and their treaty rights. Um, And I think a good example would be of like the the checkpoints that went up in different reservations, like the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, to protect their communities from COVID. Um, that's why it's important to understand sovereignty, because looking at the way media portrayed that um, looks negative about, by the tribe, as if they're doing something they're not supposed to. However, if you understood sovereignty and why the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe was exercising sovereignty, um, then you would actually have a better understanding that that's actually a right protected by the federal government. Um, And that's why sovereignty, I think, becomes important to the discipline, is that oftentimes um, our tribal sovereignty is not recognized, um, and that's why it becomes foundational to our discipline and even how we do research. Our research is grounded in the community. It should come from the community. It should be shaped by the community. And at the very least, it should either protect or advance sovereignty. So you're like my, for example, like my research agenda should not be done just to advance my, my particular research interests. It should be done to recognize that what our communities are doing um, are basically on the cutting edge of, of research for our discipline. Elise, you mentioned, um, you know, the tribal checkpoints. I mean, it, that kind of blends into your your class on sort of the contemporary issues, I think, um, mm-hmm. that are facing Native American communities. What are the most, I guess, pressing issues? Well, there's so many, I would say, pressing issues, but I feel like they're all interrelated, right? So, for example, I have students who are interested in looking at language revitalization or they're interested in looking at um, tribal governance, et cetera. But part of it is like these issues, whether it's like healthcare, access to education, you know, like um, that one example, the example I just gave of language revitalization, like those are all interrelated. And so the issues when you're looking at, I don't feel like you can just identify one. I feel like you have to look at them all holistically because they're all intertwined. Um, so even something that when we think about language and looking at language and making sure that language continues to survive within our communities, that cannot be isolated from looking at like culture, 
from looking at education, from looking at kinship or family roles. Um, that's all, like I said, interconnected. And so my students explore some of those issues in the classes, um, my class at Contemporary Issues. Um, and I have to remind them, too, like that we can try to tease out one strand, but that ultimately, you know, we should use other bodies of knowledge to inform that one particular issue. So, for example, I have a student who's interested in, like, looking at education um, in on Pine Ridge. And you can always look at the dismal, um, and people focus on, like, the dismal statistics. But, in fact, I, I try to get my students to think about it in the opposite way. Look at, okay, despite policies and United States policies of assimilation, of looking at, you know, the destruction of language, look at what Lakota people have managed to keep. They, they've kept their language. They've kept education. Um, and they've come to redefine it on their own terms. And then what does that then look like? Because then education then will look fundam fundamentally different than what it looks like from a Western perspective. And so I think if we could just kind of understand um, when we look at these issues and kind of, again, look at it from more of an Indigenous perspective, I think then our perspectives shift and change. And, and then as a result, what we see is that solutions to these issues already exist within our communities, that these communities are already looking at addressing these issues and have been addressing them for quite some time. We just have to kind of dig deeper and move beyond the Western framework to, to examine them. You know, Elise, another um, exciting, I think, development that we wanted to talk with you today about was the Institute for American Indian Studies. Um, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about what this institute is and maybe some of its history? Yeah, so um, one of the things, if you look at the Institute, it has such a rich history here at USD. Um, I know myself, when I was first interested in coming to USD, you know, I, like any other potential candidate, researched the, you know, the institution and look at things. And one of the things that piqued my interest was the Institute of American Indian Studies. And, the, and why it piqued my interest is with because even though I was well-versed in the discipline of American Indian Studies, I did not realize that USD had the Institute of American Indian Studies. And I think what's significant about the Institute is that it existed far beyond the official creation of our discipline. Our discipline of American Indian Studies really comes out of you know, like the um, American Indian Movement and looking at Indigenous activism in the like, late 1970s. The Institute was active much more earlier than that. Um, and so I think if you look at its history here at USD and in the state, I really do believe it was ahead of its time in trying to advocate on behalf of Indigenous nations. And then more importantly, um, having resources um, and research available to advance initiatives um, put forth by tribal nations. I know previous um, faculty and institute directors um, have used the institute and the research that they've conducted to you know, incorporate into their own books. Um, one of the things that I think the Institute has done very well at its early origins was the collection of oral histories. Um, and you'll see that as part of this um, revitalization of the Institute as well as that the Oral History Center, which is located um, in ID Week's library, is they're going to continue their collection and continue increasing the collection of oral histories. So I think looking at the Institute at USD, um, it's important to our institutional history here at USD, but I think it's more importantly, it's, it's important to our discipline of American Indian Studies and really looking at this as, 
at the forefront of what other institutions are trying to do now, where they're trying to create centers for Indigenous research. Um, USD was ahead of the curve on that, and so I'm excited to see that commitment by President Gestring um, to to continue to, um, like I said, revitalize the Institute and to kind of move it forward um, and partnering with tribal nations and peoples in the state and region. So explain what will be your role um, with the Institute as it sort of gets, you know, reestablished and back on its feet? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my my role at this time right now is going to, uh, as as the director, is like, I see it kind of as a formal title. But one of the things I, I'm interested in doing is kind of um, putting forth some of the initiatives um, that I've developed in um, with Dr. Kurt Hackamer, our provost here at USD. Um, so I kind of looked at thematic areas of what I think the Institute can do in the future. Um, most notably, what I mentioned um, during our official announcement is um, previously, as the faculty member in Native American Studies, I developed um, Dakota cultural workshops where I was bringing in traditional knowledge, um, sharing it with my students, teaching them how to make different things. Um, for example, um, ribbon skirts right now, we're actually working on a um, ribbon skirt workshop and a ribbon shirt workshop with our students. Um, students wanted to learn how to make them, and so we talk a little bit about their history um, and then kind of the revival today, um, recently, probably in the last few years within Indigenous communities. Um, and then so one of the things the Institute will do is I will shift that over to where the Institute will now be sponsoring the cultural workshops. But in addition to that, what I would like to do is to continue to um, reach out to our communities and look at bringing in um, experts in in these areas. So those individuals who have cultural knowledge, um, for example, like of quill work, um, I would like to invite them to campus, of course, after COVID and, and the pandemic when it's safe for people to travel and to be here um, on campus, but to invite them and to share their knowledge with our students so that these cultural traditions continue to pass on um, and that our students can, again, continue to carry on those traditions. That's one aspect of the Institute. The other part, is, like I mentioned previously, is going to be the oral history component. The Institute will be working um, with the Oral History Center to kind of assess um, their collection and then also assist in the collection of, of oral histories. Um, one of the things that we'll be doing is working with our students and training students who are interested in collecting oral interviews, um, training them and sending them out into communities to gather interviews. Um, and interviews on, you know, different topics maybe, for example, like Standing Rock um, and the No Dapple movement that happened, or I'm also interested in having students collect interviews in Indigenous languages, whether it's Lakota or Dakota or other languages, so that there are... Um, Again, records um, and interviews of individuals that are completely in the language. Um, one of the next things we would even like our students to do is for those who are um, fluent in the language to be able to assist in like the translations of those. Um, but that's again kind of like a long-term project. Um, and then one of the other things that we're interested in doing um, is looking at um, the development of scholarships. Um, for Native students here at USD or those interested um, to coming into USD, and President Genstring has committed funds to do that. Another component is going to be in conjunction with um, the tribal liaison, and right now that's currently um, 
Damon Learcharge, who's like our tribal outreach director. Um, so we will be working alongside with him as he reaches out to tribal nations here in the state. And eventually that will also expand. Um, and then finally, just identifying different projects where we can kind of um, create a more visible presence of Indigenous peoples on campus. Um, as the announcement um, of the Institute by President Gestring, one of the things that was significant was the presence of tribal flags in the um, on the stage. And we are looking to hang those at, um, in the muck. And so having a visible space and the recognition, again, going back to the importance of tribal sovereignty to recognize the sovereign nations um, and develop relationships with the tribes, I think is also significant. Um, and then finally, we would also just like to support um, students and faculty in developing projects working with tribal nations. And so that's kind of just like in terms of looking thematically what the Institute's going to do. Um, this is going to be kind of a three-phase project, a multi-year. Um, all of this cannot happen in one year, even through two or three years. Um, this is really looking at like initially this um, revitalization is looking at really a five to six-year project. You've talked about the, the concept of visibility there, um, just with displaying the Native American flags in the muck. I mean, why why does visibility matter? Um, visibility matters, and actually I'm going to answer this um, based on the discussion I had with my students the other day in my Contemporary Issues course. We are reading a book by um, Dr. Waziatouin, who's a Dakota historian, and she wrote this book called What Does Justice Look Like? And she specifically is looking at the U.S. Dakota War of 1862. And in this, she's looking at how do people in Minnesota today come to, in a sense, a reconciliation, a reconciliation of the past and then moving forward. And one of my students really had a, I, I thought was a profound question at the end of our discussion of, you know, why does representation matter? And it was really heartening to hear my students talk because, you know, representation matters to them. Many of them brought up the fact that, you know, as we are entering into this political election next week, why does representation matter at Congress? You know, how do policies get made by people who maybe don't look like us, you know, who don't have similar lived experiences? And and the consensus amongst my students was that, you know, representation matters because you don't know what other people's lived experiences are. And you can't necessarily always walk in people's shoes, but you can have people who understand that. And so kind of applying that analogy really to looking at tribal flags, it's a really a, a way to recognize um, that um, representation matters here at USD. It's a, it's a continuance of this diversity inclusiveness mission. Um, but more importantly, I know our students were excited. They were elated that they saw their tribal flags on campus for the first time. I have one student who's been here like four years, and this is the first time they saw their flag here on campus. And and many of our students later on went to, you know, go take their own photos and stuff for social media. But I think that was significant because I think for them it felt like a tangible commitment by the university to not just recognize tribal nations and, and students, but also, um, again, to see that they can, in a sense, indigenize this space. What would our space look like if we acknowledge that we are on Indigenous land? Um, and so that's why I think tribal flags are significant, because it's a physical and symbolic representation of tribal sovereignty. 
you know, Elise, I think obviously the Institute is a good step that the university is taking. Um, but more broadly, I guess, what direction do you hope to see, um, you know, the university take and maybe even the state take more broadly to relations with um, tribes and Native mm-hmm. American people? Well, I think looking at what's been done with President Gestring, um, I was really interested when President Gestring became the president of USD. What I really appreciated about President Gestring was her acknowledgement that, is that she may not understand what it is like to work with tribal nations, but she's interested in doing so. And since her inauguration, I've really felt like there's a concerted effort to support that. And that means tangible resources like funding. What I've seen since um, President Gestering um, uh, and during her presidency is really um, you'll see kind of like a push to a full-time like advisor, like a retention specialist for American Indian students. Um, you see the continued commitment to our Native students um, through, again, hiring um, the next um, Native Student Service Director, which is Megan Redshirt Shaw. Um, what we also see with President Gestring is looking at the Institute. Um, and these take resources, and it takes resources from the university. And so I think first to acknowledge that these, what may seem like small things are actually huge, um, and the Institute is like the next step in that. In terms of looking at the future, what I'm interested in seeing is how the Institute can aid in President Gestring and USD's um, next five years in our strategic mission. What does that look like and how can the Institute play an integral role in connecting to um, important stakeholders in the state, such as our nine tribal nations? Um, so I think that's what that looks like. And I think this is going to be defined by looking at um, respect and reciprocity. How can we respect tribal nations and also have a reciprocal re- relationship? What can we do to also support the agenda of tribal nations, whether it's in a research aspect, whether it's a commitment to their students here at USD. And that could be, like I said, defined in a a variety of different ways. But I'm just excited that I think these pieces are coming together at key moments with the strategic um, planning committee. They came out with the mission, the plan for the next five years. I think the Institute and what we would like to do, those all kind of, I think, align and are supportive of one another. And, and I think that, again, goes back to looking at how can we have a good relationship with the tribal nations and people um, in the state. And more importantly, what I really want um, our tribes to understand here and like um, is to realize that there is a commitment here at USC. You know, we have a, a space for Native students. We have support services for Native students. There's faculty here who are invested in their, their children. Um, And that ultimately I want people to see is that USD is a good place to be. It's a good place for education. But more importantly, it's a space that respects and understands what they are bringing to the table, which is their experiences as Indigenous people. Elise, you know, we've probably gone on too long. There's a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, but to wildly Mm -hmm. veer into a a different topic just for a couple minutes. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the last six months has just been, you know, unprecedented with how it's kind of impacted education and how, um, you know, it's affected our world. Just from a personal perspective, I mean, how has it affected your teaching, um, the pandemic, um, and, and how did you adapt to it? 
So how has the pandemic impacted my teaching and then how have I adapted to it? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh gosh. Well, you know, I think like first is like the pandemic has affected everybody. Um, and right now I think like, especially what's happening at this moment with our, with our, my relatives here in the state, these other tribal nations, including my community back home is that recently we've been hit hard. We've been hit hard by COVID and rising numbers. And, and again, some of our cases are higher per capita than any other place here, like in South Dakota or even in Montana, where I'm from. And this hasn't really impacted how I teach because one of the things I want to make sure, especially as we started this fall semester, is what can I do specifically to protect our students? Because they're they're sacrificing by leaving their community and by coming to their community, what can I make sure that we have done to continue to protect them? So one thing I think that USD has done very well is to create spaces in their classes that are socially distanced, um, that make sure that we have, you know, all the safety measures in place. Um, that's one thing that I've done. And I've also tried to adapt my classes as we go. I try to check in with my students every time I see them. Um, I've reached out to some of my students who I think are struggling. Um, and I think more importantly is to recognize that one another's humanity in all of this. I think that we all have reacted in very different ways. Um, our students are doing the best that they can, but I know what it's like to be on Zoom, to meet, you know, to have meetings. And there's like an exhaustion about it, but it's, it's, it's magnified by the pandemic. And so for me, like, while I'm interested in covering content, I'm not going to do it at the expense of my students' mental health or their experience in my class. And if that means taking away some reading or adjusting as we go, then I'm okay in doing that. And I've done that with my students. And one of the things we're trying to do is to set them up for success as they start to leave for Thanksgiving break is I want them to make sure that they've done whatever they can to, to be successful so when they go and take a break and they put, do that last final push on their own at home to get to their finals, um, that they're, I try to set them up for as much success as possible. So that for me is one of the things I've tried to do. And, you know, I always tell my students, like, I'm human. I make mistakes. Like, you know, I make mistakes with Zoom. Just the other day I was Zooming with my students. I give them the option on one day, on Tuesday for my intro. They can come in person or if they feel more safer, you know, Zooming in from home, they're, they're welcome to do that. And I record our lecture and I also post it to our site later on for them. Um, I just made a big on I thought they could hear me. Apparently they, they couldn't. They couldn't hear any audio. So it took time later on, but I, I went back and I had to re-record that lecture on my own which I could have just talked it up to like technology failure, like, well, I'm not going to do it. I already gave a lecture, but my students need that because I supplement PowerPoint with a lot of verbal um, information. And so I took the time to do something like that to make it accessible for them. But I'm also grateful that my students are forgiving of me and the mistakes that I make and realize that I'm also doing the best that I can. Elise, our last question um, is always a little uh -huh. bit more philosophical here in nature. Um, but you know, you've, I think had a, a interesting life, interesting career. Um, and now you're kind of, I think, embarking on something, um, pretty special at USD with the Institute of American Indian Studies. But at this point in your life, what do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, hmm. 
I think what I know for sure is, oh, you're going to get me emotional this morning, um, is a commitment to my family. I have had the privilege of having to be emotional, but I've had three children. I have a five-year-old, I have a three-year-old, and I have an almost um, two-year-old in January. What I know for sure is that we are taught as Indigenous people to think of seven generations behind us and then for those of the future. And I see my children as my future. So what I know for sure is that everything I do at this moment, I do for my children. And that includes what I do here at USD. I sacrifice time for my children and my family, but I do it knowing that I'm building a better future for them as Dakota people. And I want them to know more importantly that we are needed in this space and we are welcome in this space and to naturalize education for them. So I think like that's a tough one, but that's the one thing I know is that the love I have for my children and my desire to create a better future for them and then for their children. Um, Elise, you got me emotional this morning too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to speak with us and um, just really excited to see where the Institute of American Indian Studies go. I've, uh, I'm in grad school and I've been able to attend a few of your lectures um, pre-COVID oh, and, yeah. and we were able to do those sorts of things when you'd come into right. law school and stuff like that. And so um was really excited for this interview because I've, I've seen you give a couple of uh, lectures before and they're always just like incredibly interesting. So thanks again, just for all oh. the work that you do here and um, good luck on, on kind that. of the future endeavors. We're really excited to see where you take the Institute. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm going to go finish crying now. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Elise.